20 years from the inception of a drug to it hitting the market. That's insane. Yeah. So, um, and to be quite honest, I think that's like a big driver of why drugs are so expensive. I was just thinking that as you said that. is so high and it takes, so like there are people's careers that are built on failed molecules. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? My name is Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. If you'd like to support episodes like this being made, please check out the show's Patreon page at patreon.com slash halfhourintern. In today's episode, I speak with Emma Shea, who is a scientific associate at one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the entire world. So if you don't know what a scientific associate is, uh, in addition to being the first thing that we'll really cover in detail in the interview, it is basically the person at a pharmaceutical company, one of the uh, biologists, scientists that helps develop the drug. So uh, Emma has a biology background. And she and teams of tons and tons of other people uh, work on getting these drugs through the trials process and all this, uh, developing them to begin with, working on them with rats and uh, mice and people and all this stuff. So that way, one day, eventually, we can have these life-changing drugs on the shelves for ourselves. And something really cool is that Emma specifically works in the oncology division. So she works on drugs that help cancer patients and one day, you know, hopes to cure cancer altogether. Um, So it's a really fascinating episode. And uh, I should note that Emma's comments do not represent her company at all. They just represent her. These are her answers. This is pretty much like everyone on Half Hour Intern, which in my opinion is like one of the great parts about the show is the people are just being candid, answering for themselves. They're not representatives of anything greater than their own experience doing this thing. So um, her comments do not represent her company. They just represent herself. Um, But yeah, this is such a good episode. I hope you guys like it. Without further ado, here is Scientific Associate. Emma, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. So why don't we start out with just what is a Scientific Associate? So a scientific associate, at least at my company, I work for Novartis, a pharmaceutical company uh, in Cambridge. We are more or less glorified lab technicians. So we are the people behind the bench doing the experiments, doing a lot of the, um, I guess what you would call grunt work. Um, so, But we tech- we are like the group of people that are more or less fresh out of college with a handful of years of experience or so behind us. And with when you say a handful of years of experience, you mean like, chemistry experience it, like it, just to break this all apart for people like they might not know like lab tech and this sort of oh, stuff yeah so. yeah so um uh, my background is in biology uh, specifically cancer biology so my um so basically like the lab experience is like knowing how to pipette and do a couple of really basic um, molecular biology techniques and like the same goes for chemistry that you know your basics you have a really strong um academic background a very strong um you know, you're, you have like the basic knowledge to get through your day and ask the right questions and you more or less know what you're doing, but you're not necessarily driving your own experiments. You're not driving um, your own projects quite yet. Okay. And to what end are you guys doing this? So, um, 
are you as a scientific associate trying to maybe like enhance drugs that you guys already have or change them in some way? Or are you guys working on brand new things like potential drugs that have not even come out yet, like trying to make new molecules and stuff? Yeah. So, um, it depends. So my company is really large and it really depends on where you are in, uh, the group, which group you're in and what that group focuses on. So yes, we definitely have people in the oncology department who are part of our, uh, target ID and validation group, which, and that's exactly what they do. They are looking for new targets. They're looking for new things that we can potentially drug to have the next blockbuster cancer drug out there. There are people who work more in the middle, whereas we've identified targets and now we're trying to figure out what molecule is the best molecule for inhibiting or um, taking advantage of some kind of biological uh, process that this is involved in. Um, Or people like me, I'm in translation, I was in translational work where we have a drug, we have a clinical trial that this drug is going to be a part of. How can we make it more effective? Is there a specific patient population that we can take more advantage of um, who will respond to the drug much better than just a general group of cancer patients? Or is this drug going to be better in combination with another one? And can we test that in the clinic? So um, we have a lot of kind of in the trenches, but it's super cool science. I I loved every minute of it. Um, really, really fun and very high impact fast-moving environment. So, you know, everything I think we do and my friends who are in different departments, like we all feel like we're really making a difference and have an impact and that our work matters. So that's like pretty cool. Yeah, that's so awesome. So those three different kind of major examples that you listed, those would all still be scientific associates? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. So Um, the first one, go ahead. Oh yeah, sorry. Like I said, it's like really the people who are doing the actual experiments, whereas like our bosses um, have their PhDs in some kind of molecular biology or biochemistry background. And, you know, they're the ones who like show off our work and okay. do all the talking. <laughs> are, what about, I guess it would be like any other job in that way. I, I was going to say, so are they they're the ones then that come up with the idea to begin with? And then it's kind of, you're the one that needs to carry out this idea that they've come up with. It, what about if you come up with a really interesting idea or notice something really novel and you think, okay, I think that actually if we had like several people working in this other direction, that might be really cool. Is there freedom to, to, uh, for you to like kind of take lead like that? Or do you just got to kind of keep your head down and it's the, the guy up top that is going to always like get all the credit for everything and needs to come up with the ideas? Yeah. I mean, that's how you get promoted. So, <laughs> Um, we, uh, I think it depends on your group. My experience, I've been pretty lucky in that, like, I have been able to present ideas and people have more or less given me the thumbs up to be like, yeah, like try it out. And you know, if it doesn't work, oh, well, at least we know it doesn't work. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like these innovative ideas, like don't come from one person. It is really like a village of people and a group of people that will, um, that are really supposed to be there to support you and help you through um, your projects to so you can become more independent and more of a scientific thinker and um, lead the way. So like there, that's more of what my managers have been in the past, and I've been very lucky in that regard because there are certainly other people whose experience is just keeping their head down, not saying much, letting yeah. their boss talk. 
Right. Oh. Man, I can't imagine how cool it must be for a biologist like you to have the role that you have and to work where you do. I I just the other day was interviewing a uh like a basically a quantum physicist that works at CERN and he was just talking about like how awesome it is to work at CERN if you're a physicist because there's all these other brilliant physicists around, you know? I feel like it's got to yeah. be a similar experience for you that you have all these really intelligent like biologists and chemists and everything around you that you actually um get to like feed off each other. Yeah, it's awesome. I love, like, everyone is so smart, and everyone has these, they're they're almost, like, insane ideas, and when certain people, when their ideas get the green light, and, um, you know, you give them a year, it's kind of re- insane to see how quickly things have turned into a new program, or a new target, or, um, in some cases, like, how trials will evolve, and, be done and run so it's just sort of amazing how sometimes all of that just kind of starts from a really simple result from a really simple experiment that we were all a part of so yeah it's awesome right i really really like it so let's talk about that timeline and the way that these things can kind of end up and and so i would obviously have to imagine that this can vary so much like the timeline from a drug being a an idea or, or not even the drug being an idea, but like um, just atta- the the concept of even attacking a certain disease state or going after cancer with a certain pathway in a certain way or something. How like give us the, the time scale of like, OK, here's maybe how long we would be looking at this and talking about this until it the, like if all those things check out, it gets moved to like stage two. And then in stage two, it lasts in that stage for like this long and all these different stages that it would actually need to go through before it could actually be a drug that a doctor could prescribe to a patient. Yeah. So I think typically the timeline, at least that we're all fed during orientation and things, is that it's 20 years from the inception of a drug to it hitting the market. That's insane. Yeah. So, um, and to be quite honest, I think that's like a big driver of why drugs are so expensive. Like I was the fail- and like just thinking the that as you said that. is so high and it takes, so like there are people's careers that are built on failed molecules, you know? Right. Um, there are so many people that just like don't succeed. I don't want to say that they don't succeed. It's just that it doesn't work out. Well, isn't the failure rate in pharmaceuticals uh, like 80% or 90% or yeah. something like that? Oh, it's yeah. like nine out yeah. of 10 never make it. And, you know, you could spend a billion dollars on like one single one that doesn't make it or something. And, let, right. and you're going to have nine that don't make it before you have one that does. Yeah. And then the one that does, like you, you run with it as for as long as you can. Yeah. And it took 20 years, years. Like you said, 20 years of work for the one that does <laughs> and nine yeah. that didn't make it. So yeah, it's, yeah. I think about this all the time, not, not to sidetrack too much. We'll, we'll get back to the whole timeline of things, but I, I think about this all the time when, you know, people talk about how terrible it is, how much money pharmaceuticals are and, and how that's not right. And that, you know, the prices of all these things should be lower and everything. And there's always a good reason for everything, I guess. And there's always like another side to an argument. And I don't, I don't know that uh, that it's that it is entirely right. Like how expensive some interesting and amazing, you know, life changing pharmaceuticals are. But yeah, I mean, when you have to spend billions or trillions of dollars to get one drug out, like you need to recoup that money. You have to, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it's. I mean, the failure comes at so many different parts of the process that, like, there are so many drugs that get. To patients that get into people 
and, you know, the safety profile doesn't pan out or it really isn't as good as a competitor drug. So we don't get FDA approval because we don't, we don't provide any extra benefit um, compared to the competition. So there, you know, so drugs failing in like this discovery stage is kind of best case scenario. Right. Yeah. In my opinion, just because it's like, okay, well, we learned something. Um, and I mean, it's not like you don't learn anything from the other end, but one end feels slightly more unfair than the other. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <to me>. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it just, it really depends. And it, and a lot of times there are situations where everything looks great and then you move into a new model system and it falls apart. Um, and that's just because we are still lacking the knowledge, the technology to really be able to truly translate results from cells grown on a plastic dish to cells that are then transplanted into a mouse or a rat that are then eventually translated into what we would do in a person. Um, and there's a lot of gaps in our knowledge there. God, I can only imagine. On it, yeah. And like, we're working on it every day. We're definitely like, that is definitely something we are very aware of and very careful and um, very, uh, that we are really focusing on trying to address and understand better. Um, but you know, I think the, there will always be shortcomings like this because we can't just go right into people. It's incredibly unethical. Yeah. So it's but. interesting to that to that point in terms of like, A, so much time has already gone by and so much money has already been spent. It's got to be crazy when you finally do put it into a mouse or when you find or, or then if it passes that, like the first person that it's put in, is everyone just kind of like collectively holding their breasts and like staring at the data as it's coming back from the person or the mouse or whatever it is. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's a, um, you know, the first success, um, you know, of a patient responding to one of our drugs is a, certainly a very promising step. But at the same time, I think we're all very skeptical <laughs> in our, um, when you've been there long enough to know that, you know, one patient that benefits us awesome for that patient, that family. Um, but one patient doesn't necessarily speak for the results of the actual trial or the cohort. But um, again, it, but it isn't really about that. If it does help that one patient, that one family, I I mean, that's why we're all in for it. Yeah, totally. Right. Um, All right. So let's break apart that sort of 20 year timeline a little bit more. Like what, what are, what are the big chunks of studies and like the big chunks of time within that, that 20 year timeline from idea to shelf? Yeah. So your first chunk is probably the chemical synthesis while in parallel understanding the biological processes that will be impacted um, by targeting whatever your protein. Um, So chemistry will make dozens and dozens of compounds, um, which is, at least in my experience, has been straightforward. It is time-consuming because obviously that's going to take forever. But um, what they're doing is just testing all these different salts, all these different makeups that we will then test on cells to see if it's soluble, to see like how long the drug stays attached to its target, if the drug even reaches its target, if there are drug-drug interactions that we need to be aware of. So that that's a huge chunk for sure. Um, how do they how do they and, even come up with what they are going 
to be doing, like with what they're going to be creating, like what, what sort of instruction would be given to them, I guess. So I don't really know that part of the process all that well, but what, from what I have seen with, when it starts with a screen of some sort that has identified a new target that we can go after, um, we, the biologists identify the function that they want to shut off. So then the biologist and the chemist that sit down work together to see how that protein naturally functions and what naturally binds to it. And then the chemist and the biologist will sit down and build models, like so 3D models of the crystal structure of a compound that would mimic what we would like it to do. Mm, okay. Um, and then from there, I think the chemists do a ton of magic and make it happen because <laughs> um, I have no idea how to go from a 3D computer model to something that actually gets sprinkled on cells. Yeah. Um, so, but that is definitely like chunk A, big time chunk A is figuring that out. Um, time chunk B is vetting all of these um, compounds that chemistry makes in our cell lines, in our models of interest to see, again, like if it's good on cells, awesome. Is it okay in the mouse? Like, is it going to, you know, kill it the second we inject it? Or, like, should we even inject it? Like, should it be, like, how do we deliver this thing? Um, you know, those are questions we start asking very early in the process. Because um, uh, ideally, we'd want everything to be in a pill. Um, patients are much more likely to take a pill than have things injected into them right. or other means. So if there's a way for us to do that, we definitely prefer that. Um, and then the next chunk is really... Once all of that talk stuff, and I guess it's really the two main pieces, like going somewhere from the chemistry to vetting the chemistry in all of these different model systems to make sure it's safe and um, well-tolerated, the next big chunk is the clinical trials. And clinical trials take years um, and years uh, from enrolling patients to identifying your patient population. And that's kind of where my translational group comes into play. It's identifying these patients taking this drug that has already made it through, um, you know, what we call uh, POC or proof of concept. Like we've tested it in a small subset of patients or a small, um, in a small uh, controlled setting in the lab and everything looks good. It looks like it's, it's doing what it should be doing. All of our biomarkers are doing the right thing. Um, you know, the biology is still, is appearing as if it works out. And then you go into our most important um, model system, which is the human patient. And cancer trials are a little bit different than regular other types of drug trials in that our phase one trials are in super sick people. Um, they're kind of a, like, this is sort of like a last resort for them. So what we really try to do is see if it's safe and if there's benefit for these folks. Um, so that's actually really cool, but you can imagine definitely takes time. Um, and it's hard to get a, a sizable patient cohort where we can make sense of the data. Yeah. Um, so that's basically the next step is saying, okay, this drug is safe. So how, how much of it can we give to a patient to get, um, to make their tumors go down, to cure their cancer, because that's what we're really trying to do is cure cancer, the noble, right. the noble cause of uh, pharmaceutical companies. 
Um, so yeah. And like that, again, we have to collect, we have to recruit the right patients. We have to make sure the patients keep taking the drug as administered. Cause a lot of this really does have to do with patient consent and, um, also how well patients comply with so, regimens. Yeah. It's so interesting so that you work on process. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting that that's the part that you work on because I used to be a medical device rep. And so that's the only part that I would ever face when we would be doing a trial. The most recent company that I work for, we had like an advanced level trial going on and uh, a, a few of my offices were a part of it. So I would go there to check in on the patients and in general, I would I would always check in on my patients that were using other products of ours and stuff. And um, it's like I would liken the analogy, like I would imagine from you going from rats to people. It's like if you were a really great like hydroponic gardener or something, you know, and it's like you grew these like beautiful carrots in this like perfect hydroponic like setting indoors. And then you go to grow them outdoors in like a field, you know, and it's like. Oh, what the yeah, heck? Exactly. Like there's weeds around. Oh my God. There's these like aphids eating this thing. And now there's these other bugs eating this thing. And oh my gosh, this gopher just showed up and it ate one whole carrot <laughs> just in one bite. And it's like, that's what it's like going, I would imagine from these rats where you're controlling their meals, you're controlling how much they move around, you're controlling when and where they move around and how, all these things. And then you give it to a person and like we w- with my products, like we would give people the the most simple of of requests, you know, like a recommendation the the physician would would be like, if you could do me a favor and just like not smoke your cigarettes for the next seven days while we're trying to like look at this thing, or if you could do me a favor and elevate your leg for thirty minutes every evening, and then they would come back like a week later and it'd be like, "So did you elevate your leg for thirty minutes? Oh no, I totally forgot." I didn't do that at all. And it's like, what? Like, what are you talking about? Like, we just put thousands and thousands of dollars of, of, uh, equipment on you, like this thing on you that is so expensive. And all we asked was that you put your leg up for 30 minutes and it's like, oh, no, totally forgot. No, I didn't do that. You know, it's like, it's just so difficult when you get to the human level and trying to, like you said, then, then you need to obviously get tons of people in this trial to make sense of the data. Um, but to even make sense of the data anyways, it's like the, no two people are even kind of alike because you need to yep. take into account lifestyle and, and all these other things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it, it's, yeah. The things I think I take into account more with the patients that we have is, um, you know, they're, it, it almost seems like if their families are really into it, they're into it. And then if they're not, they don't really want to be in the trial anymore. Um, and it's just like, it's kind of sad given like the patient populations that we have, cause there will be, um, you know, people will drop out for tons of reasons, but a lot of them is just like, they're tired and they don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, I can't blame them, but it's, I can't imagine what it must be like doing that. But when we do have a successful trial that does lead to FDA approval and drugs eventually going onto the market and we get these letters of like success stories and like thank you notes of like, thanks for, you know, you gave my mom another birthday, another Christmas, like all this. And it's just, uh, it's so heartwarming. And you're just like, I'm going to forget about every time I got annoyed that some like nurse 
or doctor forgot to take a measurement <laughs> for this patient on this trial. So now our data doesn't make any sense. Right, right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's just a ton. There's just always a ton of moving parts and, you know, you can't control everything. But, you know, at the end of the day, these trials do tend to be successful um, in that they meet their goals, they meet their enrollment goals, we meet our treatment goals, um, and whether or not, you know, we get the results we were hoping for, that's completely different. But at the end of the day, I think we all, we, we have the system worked out pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So there's these three kind of major groups of scientific associates that you went over as the drug moves through that timeline does the the entire drug get kind of handed off to the next group or is the last group still kind of also working on it while the next group is working on it? Yeah. Um, there are definitely projects that just get thrown over the fence, um, from one group to another, um, with, I mean, I think one of the problems is that sometimes there's very little communication and transparency as to like what's already been done. So there's a lot of redundant work. (laughs) Um, but, um, in general, once compounds have reached a certain point in their lifespan, they do get passed on, but they're still maintained um, in other groups for other things. Like um, if they have, if the drug we're working on happens to be super potent against a target and we're simultaneously working on a backup compound for one reason or another, we'll use that as a control. So all groups will still I guess, maintain access and availability to their, to the drug that they've been working on to use for anything that they need. Mm, Yeah. Interesting. How many total scientific associates would you say work at Novartis? Oh my goodness. Um, I want to say we make up like 20 to 25% of the company in Cambridge. There's a ton of us. Yeah. Um, Because every department has them. It's not just oncology. So anybody that has a research base is going to have people at my level. And do you guys um, work in a lab or at a desk? Both. <laughs> yeah. So um, most of us have benches and desk space, and some of us have desks that are our benches. Um, depends on how much you want to be able to eat while you work. Because <laughs> um, you can't eat at the bench, which is some, yeah. a rule that we'll all break eventually. <laughs> yeah, for sure. How many people or how many uh, scientific associates, I guess, work on one particular drug at a time? Or, or, or I guess it's even in like one third, like of that one third population. So like the people that are doing what you do on your drug, uh, how many of them are, are doing that? And then are they, are some of them looking at the same thing and you just are basically trying to get two sets of eyes on the same data with the same question just to see if both people are seeing the same thing? Or is it always that we're both looking at the same data, but we're trying to look at different things? Yeah, it's more of the second one where we're all um, kind of contributing to a project together um, and bringing different pieces to the table. But there will be situations like, especially if we get something super cool like, uh, uh, or a highly unexpected result that could change um, the direction of the project. Uh, we will definitely ask someone, uh, we will go to someone else who's also on the project team to reproduce our results because we just want to make double, triple sure that what we're seeing is real. 
And the best way to do that is to make sure other people can reproduce your results. Right. Do you guys keep working on drugs after they're released, like trying to find out different ways that they can also be used even after it's being prescribed for something? Uh, yeah. Um, so some of the things that people in translational medicine will do is exactly that. They'll be like, okay, well, this is approved. So let's see if we can put it in combination with something, um, and get it off the ground in a combination trial with another drug, um, that might not make it by itself as a single agent. And that seems to be a fairly popular approach right now. Um, at least in uh, the oncology field, um, people certainly giving up the shotgun approach <laughs> and trying to find the more targeted uh, combination therapy route. Yeah, it's got to save so much money if you can find more indications for something you already have. Yeah, yeah. Um, or at, at least like extend the patent life. <laughs> yeah, too. yeah, good point. Um, so, the, I mean, at the end of the day, it's... Uh, it's, but I think the the stuff that really drives trying to extend the life of a compound is, if anything, is probably what very very science driven. Um, just because at that point we feel like we have a little bit more freedom to do uh, molecular biology sort of outside of uh, patient benefit, if that makes sense. Like mm -hmm. the the um, you can start asking more interesting questions. You can start using that drug. Um, in screens and then publish data with that drug. So they, it, it just, once a drug gets released, it kind of opens a lot of doors to do more academic, uh, take a more academic approach with the research and like publish on the science and publish on, um, you know, uh, things that we didn't necessarily know before that we had this drug available to use. Right. So you guys are one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world. How many drugs are you guys working on at one time? Oh my, I have no idea. I feel like I should, but I don't. Um, I know the oncology pipeline, we, I, oh my God, we have to have like, at least that would come through translational, the translational group, like 20, 30 compounds just that are still continuing in research. And we have at least 40 or 50 um, open clinical trials oh, right wow. now with compounds that I, yeah. And that's just in the oncology yeah. division. Yeah. Oncology and immuno-oncology. So all the immune stuff is very hot right now. <laughs> okay. So there's easily hundreds of, of different oh, yeah. trials sure. and all that. Yes. Yeah. 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 For sure. So, I just, I don't really know. <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about placebo effect and if that actually, like I, I know that there's been like news articles written about like the increasing, uh, occurrence of placebo effect and stuff has that happened with you guys where that is the thing when you guys are doing trials that kind of sinks a drug and doesn't let it come out is that yeah the the drug is maybe having like a 20 percent success rate but so is just saline or so is a sugar pill or whatever so placebo effect is not allowing our drug to come out so with um oncology trials we don't have we don't have like a placebo what we compare to is the standard of care oh that makes sense so, of course yeah because yeah, how so that that'd be, be so negligent to give a patient placebo you couldn't do that yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh because right like i like i said um the phase one trials for oncology trials we are dealing with the sickest of the sick um 
So we will, and like the goal is to extend their life and quality of life. Um, so what we are always being compared to is the standard of care for that cancer type. Um, and for, and for that patient. So if that patient is getting three different types of chemotherapy drugs and then they enroll on our trial, we'll compare, you know, how they did on chemo versus how they did on our drug. How is it determined whether or not the patient continues on chemo while taking your drug versus just, or, or do you need to put patients in multiple different brackets and like some of them keep getting chemo and they get your drug, other ones only get your drug? Or again, would that then be considered negligent? And like, you know, if if it's determined that all the patients stay on chemo, then they will and they just get your drug as an adjunct. Yeah. So what um, what I believe the process is, is that we enroll patients um, on into phase one trials more or less by saying, hey, you're qualified for this clinical trial. Would you like to be on trial? And then it's randomized um, if they keep the current treatment that they have or if they receive our treatment. So um, we don't, like, I do not know how that process uh, works, but our co- our general phase one cohorts is half to maintain their standard treatment plan and then the other half um, or whatever are given our drug. What does the final outcome need to look like then on the oncology side? Because I, like, regular drugs, I would imagine it's like, okay, it needs to do X times better than the placebo group for you guys. Does it just need to be as good as the current standard of care or, or what is it? At, uh, a little bit better. <laughs> uh, what we are looking for in phase one trials is that it's safe. It's doing the drug is doing what we want it to do, whether that's tumor shrinkage or engaging the immune system or um, something else. Um, we're going to be measuring that, that we have the right biomarker plan in place. So the way that we can monitor um, the changes without necessarily taking a biopsy every time, um, because those are uh, really long, arduous procedures that patients don't really like having. Um, And so that's really, and that's what really what we're looking for in our phase one trial is that it's safe. We're using efficacious doses and um, we're get and the readouts that we're looking for are effective readouts. So when we go into phase two dose escalation trials, um, we can start to stratify the effect the drug is actually having on the tumor by saying, okay, we can dose up to this much um, versus this much, and then kind of compare within groups. Mm. Whereas uh, phase one is really just making sure that our drug does not make it um, worse. It's not any worse for you than chemo. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, So, all right. So far we've talked kind of big picture about what you do and uh, what other scientific associates do and stuff. What is the actual day to day like? Like take me into like a single day and like the eight hours of the day and what, like what exactly are you doing? Yeah. So um, on any given, it could be a number of things on any given day, but mostly um, people you know, you roll in whenever, like nine and 10, between nine and 10, usually it's pretty lax. Um, people will, there will already be people in the lab just busy and doing things. I usually start my day by checking my email and my to-do list that I made for myself the day before to see what experiments I have to follow up on, what experiments I need to start, if there's like maintenance work that needs to be done to so like shoe culture. Um, 
making sure that my the cells that I'm using are happy and healthy for the most part. Um, and then it's, you know, I sprinkle in some meetings and um, that's more or less the day, but our experiments can take hours. So, and like, there's plenty of chunks of time where something's running, but I'm going to be doing something else. Um, so for example, uh, yeah. So I guess, for example, like a Western blot, something that we do all the time, it's a way to measure protein abundancy in a given sample. So those take about four hours to run. And we have these fancy machines that do the transfer part that basically puts the protein gel onto this membrane that we can then stain with antibody and then look at. So you actually see um, the protein, uh, that transfer thing takes 10 minutes. Whereas like my old lab at Dana Farber, it was a three hour ordeal. So yeah, (laughs) it was, it was nuts going from an academic lab to farm to a pharmaceutical company. Cause it was just like, wow, you have money for toys. Like this is great. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, So, but the running the gel itself, we still have to figure that out because it's electrophoresis. So that takes at least, you know, that I typically an hour and a half. Um, but people will like do their protein extraction, set up their gels and then run their gels, go to lunch, come back, transfer their gels, finish off, um, day one of a Western, which is getting it in its primary antibody and then putting that in for an overnight incubation. And then people will probably, you know, we've, we'll take care of ourselves, um, which is a funny thing to say out loud and to people who don't necessarily work in. (laughs) the science industry (laughs) um and tissue culture work can take anywhere from half an hour to three hours i've definitely spent a whole day in the hood before just plating experiments prepping everything because there's a good 24-hour lead time to any experiment you'd like to run at least in a cell um based environment with in vivo studies that can take up to two weeks uh to prep just even start (laughs) so a lot of it is just planning your couple of days because um, the experiment time itself is, you know, like I said, 24 hours, 72 hours longer than that sometimes. And um, we just want to make sure we're not coming in on weekends. Now, what would the, like, give us a, an example of like a sample experiment for an in vivo study. An in vivo study. Okay. So um, for us, you so you would start with so let's just pretend we're going to start all the way from the beginning you have nothing um you'd receive a tumor sample from somebody some vendor and you'd have to thaw it implant it into five mice um, wait wait wait. is that two okay so tumor sample is that an actual tumor that occurred on an animal or a person or is this like grown in a lab Oh yeah, it's a so we will buy like tumor uh like fresh human tissue samples from known vendors. So these are all like informed consent from people. Okay. Tissue. Got it. Um and then we'll implant them into five nude mice. Um they don't have immune systems, which is why we use them because then they can grow um these tumors. Um and that's a giant waiting game. So depending on the tumor the take rate of that tumor type, so how fast those tumors tend to grow, you're waiting for a tumor to reach a palpable size, which um, is about 200 millimeters squared. So about the size of a quarter on a map. So like pretty large. Um, And then that can take anywhere from a few weeks to uh, a year. 
Um, Whoa. Our, yeah. <laughs> so our, our uh, tissue team, our in vivo team, when they are vetting tumors and making tumors uh, models for us, they, <laughs> they give it a year. And if it doesn't grow after a year, we just call it. Um, those tumors are then extracted from the mice. They are then sequenced. So we can understand the baseline genomics and genetics of the tumor. So we can um, start to model and place that particular tumor type with other models of, um, you know, similar lineage. So we can put all the lung models together and start to use this giant database of patient-derived tumor models. Mm. So you're getting as much data as you can at every single turn. Like, this is exactly what this tumor is like. This is the ways it's similar to the other tumors. That way it's not just like, oh yeah, I think this drug works on tumors. It's like, no, I know that it worked on this exact type of tumor. I have no idea if it's going to work on the other ones. Right. Exactly. And so, um, you know, one of the big projects we published a few years ago was exactly this. It was one tumor going into one mouse receiving one drug treatment, which is exactly like a human clinical trial. You have one cancer patient that receives one drug regimen. And we can learn a lot about the patients now with deep sequencing and all this. Like we will ask every patient on our trial if they're cool with having, with getting their tumor sample sequence. Um, And that's definitely part of their informed consent. So if they're not cool with it, we don't, we obviously don't do it. But right. um, you need the data. Uh, yeah, we need the data. So and that's how we learn about all these things and really can get into nitty gritty details about what makes your cancer your cancer versus the guy in the bed next to you and his cancer. Um, so Wait, and it was a really qu- really quick question before we move forward yeah. here is. So it, what you said was that you you get these tumors, you put them on the mice, you grow them. And then you take them off the mice. Why do we put them on the mice at all? Like, why aren't we just using them immediately when they arrive if all we're going to do is take them back off the mice? Like, I figured you were going to start working on the tumor while it was still attached to the mouse. Yeah, so we take a chunk of that tumor while it's still attached to the mouse, and then we put it in another mouse so we can passage it and watch it evolve and then treat it. So we have to make sure that we have viable tissue to study. Okay. And you want to see how the tumor behaves over time. So that's like, I guess, another one of those data points, one of these things you can document. Yeah. Yeah. So there's basically stages of where we passaged a tumor in a mouse just to have it grow. We then take that piece, put it into mice that are then used for um, drug treatments, experiments, and things like that. Okay. Man, how crazy that you have these mice that like all they do is just grow a tumor. Like that's their whole job. I know. They are the they are science's greatest heroes. They were you know. <laughs> Russia has this really cute um monument to mouse to uh scientific animals like used in studies and things. Like it's a memorial for them. That's and awesome. It's like we should have one. <laughs> yeah, everyone should have one for uh, sure. Like I know that, that it, it's um it, it's definitely a subject that everyone glosses over at work. Like we know it happens and we know that we do it, but like no one really likes that we have to do it. Yeah, totally. It's hard, right? Hopefully hell isn't like run by those mice or something. Oh my God. Just... I think about that all the time. Yeah. Like, that's how I will be punished in the afterlife. Is... Yeah. I mean, it's for the greater uh, good. Like, I don't know what the other option is, you know? So, but right, yeah. Right. But, uh, yes. So for your PETA listeners, I, I, I get it. I yeah, do. totally. <laughs> Um, 
All right, so you've grown these tumors. Uh, so now what's the next step in the uh, in the trial? Or not the trial, but like for you guys, I guess. So yeah, so we are marked with tumor. We then sequence the tumor. And now that we have genetic data of our tumor, um, we can then make informed decisions on how to move forward. So these mice with this specific tumor will um, be treated with a certain with different drugs to see how well we can mimic if that, if that mouse and that tumor were to be a human patient um, in a clinical trial, how well would we do at uh, assigning that, that tumor, that mouse to the right drug regimen? So that's what we do. And those take, um, and again, we will treat the mice until their tumor um, cannot be seen anymore. Um, up to 60 days with continuous treatment following, you know, a protocol that would be very similar to what we, we would give human patients or if their tumor just keeps growing because at that point it, it we know that the drug isn't working. Right. Uh, do you guys do all the data collection and analysis or is that other people who that's their whole job and you guys just keep working? Yeah, this is a, so this is like a whole flew of people. This, these kinds of projects are, you know, five, 10 people minimum. Um, so you have people running these little mouse clinical trials, and then um, they're all responsible for collecting the tumors for the trials that they support. So if they're supporting one, one compound, they'll just be responsible for those. But that's oh, like 60 tumors <laughs> to harvest at one point and um, taking PK and all these different samples to um, monitor the activity and making sure that the mice stay healthy and um, relatively happy, all things considered. Um, but uh, yeah, and then their tumors get processed, so they are then passed off to someone who will do the DNA and RNA extraction. That DNA and RNA then gets sent off to a um, next-generation sequencing lab that does um, the sequencing, and then our bioinformatics group will do all of the sequencing analysis. So aligning that to human transcriptome, making sure we filter out any mouse genes so that doesn't confound our data, and then making pretty visualizations so the non-computational folks can understand what they did <laughs> and what they're looking at. Right, right. Once everything has been going well with the mice, what? so we talked about what allows a... Uh, a cancer drug to make it to the shelf, like for a doctor to be able to prescribe it. And that is, it, it usually has to do a little bit better than the current standard of care. What allows it to go from mice to people? Like how, how good does it have to do with the mice or, or what other boxes does it have to check with the mice that allow you to do a human trial? Yeah. So from mice, we graduate to rats um, and making sure that, everything we expect that we saw in the mice is, is consistent with rats. So our model systems will just get a little bit bigger until we move to people. Hmm. Um, and from rats, we will move to dogs um, for toxicity studies. Um, and we'll check the dogs for, you know, heart, any, any complications with the cardiac system or your liver or their livers. Um, and things like that. So as we move um, up in model systems, we're starting to move the questions we're asking, move away from, is the drug hitting the target? Because we know that already, or at least we've assumed 
that as well as we could given the mouse studies um, and what we're able to connect collect from the mice. So now the question shifts from, okay, I think our biology is on point, but how on point is it? Because just because you're hitting your target, we still don't necessarily understand all the downstream effects that this drug could possibly be wreaking havoc on. Right. Um, so that's when we start using model systems to check for safety um, and efficacy and starting to understand how much drug do we really need and that therapeutic index that magic number that everybody um, really focuses on because you can have a great drug, but if that therapeutic index window is super narrow, you're never going to, it's never going to make it in a mm -hmm. person. Yeah. Um, just because there's just too much going on in the human body or even in a rat body um, that just makes it too hard to predict um, the outcome that you want. How do you guys determine what side effects are due to? I can't, imagine how difficult and frustrating that is like i'm thinking of like let's say a you're, you're at the human trials phase and a again like this wouldn't be for something as serious as as cancer medication but let's say you know somebody's trialing some other type of medication and like the patient's like oh yeah i had diarrhea last week and it's like you know you'll because like i'll hear these drug ads on tv and it's like oh it may cause diarrhea and then it's like well mm -hmm. But what else did you do last week? Like, did you have like some weird food that you don't usually have? Like, did you do a bunch of extra exercise? Like, did you have a really stressful week at work? Like, you know, it's like there's a million things that can cause diarrhea. It'd be like, oh, you can have a headache. You can have this. You can have that. So it's like, let's say 20% of the, uh, the people come back with a response of, oh, I had a headache in the past month. It's like probably about 20% of people period had a headache in the last month, you know? So like how, how do you guys determine what side effects are due to and if it's a real problem or not? And, and at what point do you have to start actually listing side effects as being a problem? Oh, uh, from day one, um, adverse events are no joke. We definitely take them very seriously. I do not know, however, the specifics, of how we necessarily go about kind of diagnosing whether or not um, common side effects like diarrhea, nausea, those kinds of things, if how if those are what we would call on-target effects, as in like the drug that the target we're drugging is actually part of this pathway. So sometimes it's a quick search, um, or we've seen it in, we've had hints at it, in some of our other models, but there are grades of these adverse events. So, um, you know, and it is at the end of the day, a judgment call for the patient. It's like, would you rather have cancer um, or have like a bad bout of diarrhea? Um, and, but at the same time, there are certainly adverse events that um, are like, you know, if you have diarrhea every day, consistent, like, for a week, you're going to be super dehydrated. Like that could kill you. Like that does kill people. Um, so we're very careful to make sure that if there are side effects, they are minimal and manageable with over-the-counter or um, extra fluids or things like that. Um, but in the event where we do have on-target um, side effects, that um, that could kill a program really easily. Uh, especially if there's nothing we can do to the chemistry or change the delivery of the drug to circumvent those events. Mm. Um, and it is, 
I mean, I don't work on these things personally, but I know that it is just a ton of work to identify why these are happening. How can we prevent them from happening ideally? Or, um, you know, is it okay? Like, can this patient take Tylenol while taking the drug? Or is that not right. a good idea? Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, um, yeah, I wish I had more details to that specific thing, but we do, we definitely, um, do have grades of these things. So like grade one and two, like those are things where, okay, fine. Like these are cancer drugs, like chemo causes hair loss and nausea and it's awful, but you do it. Um, because it's a, like, it is a fairly effective therapy and, um, there's really no getting around it, but like you come out of it cause you're not constantly being treated with chemo. Right. Um, and, but like, it's basically like, it sucks, but it's manageable. Like, so, so like the side effects you hear on drug commercials and things here, um, those is what we would all consider adverse events. Like it might happen to you and it'll suck for a little bit, but it's not bad. Um, and then grade three, four, five, these are dangerous. Um, you know, we take, we stop the patients taking our drug. We try to figure out why that happened, what else is happening, what else is going on. Um, and, you know, this is things, these are things that we learn um, from phase one trials, but we try very, very hard to either predict these things and knowing that they're coming and making that part of the treatment plan. So like the dog studies, for example, are very um, informative for these types of things. Like, well, we'll know where we'd expect to see certain toxicity issues or did we just dose the, did we just dose too high? Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. So can you dial it back? Um, are kind of the way we approach solve, trying to solve those, but, um, it's always safety first. So if it doesn't look, if it's not something that the patient is comfortable with, or even the doctor is comfortable with administering, it's over. So you brought up a really interesting thing about um, it was either Tylenol or ibuprofen, but things that are that common like that, I would imagine that a, a drug is allowed to be released for sale, not knowing how it's going to interact with every other drug in the world, because there's no way that you could have yeah. that data. And it's like, we try to accumulate that data as time goes on and like pharmacists and stuff will, will try to track things like that in their patients and maybe put it on some database. I don't know. But anyways, it's just like everyone's job to try to pitch in and see other bad uh you know, drugs that drugs don't work well with. Uh, but before any drug hits the shelves, does it kind of have to be determined that it doesn't have problems with ibuprofen and Tylenol and things like that that are just incredibly common? Um, yes, we will certainly do that. Um, uh, but I don't, I'm, but at the same time, I'm not sure. I think it depends on the drug and where we expect people to, Really know because the nice thing about ibuprofen, acetaminophen, and all that stuff is that they're so well known and so highly studied that given the chemist, the chemical structure of our drugs alone is enough to tell us whether or not it would interact with. Those oh things. wow, interesting! So um, we like we'd be able to tell pretty quickly that maybe you don't give patients this kind of um, over-the-counter painkiller or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so that's what's nice about that. But again, it, I think it depends on the drug regimen. And I also think it depends on the patient and, um, you know, what their needs are at the time. Yeah. 
Um, so you mentioned earlier that there, and I don't know the name of it, <laughs> uh, but uh, that there is a a thing that makes the proteins or like sets that all up that it now Weapon it only blots takes... and gel electrophoresis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, but you were saying that the, the thing that makes the Western blots, I think, or that like transports them or whatever, that now you can do that in 10 minutes and before it took like three oh, hours. Yeah. So what are other <laughs> examples of things like that, that where like technology has really impacted your work and more importantly, I guess, where do you see the future of doing what you do in ways that this could be really, really, really different 15, 20 years from now from where it's at right now on a technology side? Yeah, I mean, next generation sequencing is where it's at right now. Like everybody is getting sequenced. Like 23andMe is doing commercials to have you get sequenced <laughs> um, and build this giant genetic database. And we are making huge, uh, the scientific community is making huge strides in single cell sequencing. So taking circulating tumor cells, extracting that from your normal blood and getting the genetics of your tumor from a blood draw instead of a painful and invasive biopsy procedure. Like that's incredible. Like 10 cells, from 10 cells, you're getting the same amount of information that you're getting from a tumor chunk. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. And it's cheap. It's only getting cheaper, um, which is strange. Um, but huh, uh, computers are getting bigger. Processing is getting faster. We can do all these things. And to think that the human genome project finished in like what, 1992. Yeah. Right. And that took 20 years. And now we are just churning out, I don't know. I think our lab does like 96 samples a day. <laughs> what was it before um, that? Um, well, I don't know because I wasn't doing it then, but I can assume as my professors and uh, colleagues have told me, it was, you know, five and you're pouring your own gels and you're going through like matching the A's and the T's and the G's and the C's on by hand, like no computers. No oh, wow. Yeah. So it's nuts, like how much and how fast this all kind of blew up and took off and now there are these companies that are being built just based on sequencing technology alone and claiming to be better faster stronger blah 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 than companies uh, like 23 and me like you mentioned um you know basically getting people's genetic info is that are you guys able to purchase info like that or is that like you can get that from patient like should a patient want to have their own um, genetic info, you can ask for it and, and now you'll just have it. Uh, yeah, so that's definitely part of our informed consent when we want to sequence your tumor. We'll also sequence your normal self because uh, we need something to compare it against. Um, so what... But no, we will never offer or would want to buy anything from 23andMe. That's... Um, yeah, what 23andMe collects is not something that pharmaceutical companies are necessarily interested in. Right, <laughs> um, it's not at the level that you so, guys could use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's also, I mean, it tells you cool things about where you're from. And anyway, but for us, our sequencing needs are really to, we've already identified the patient and we want to make sure that that patient um, on a genetic level is the correct patient to enroll in our trial. So we're already looking for something pretty specific. We're not just like trolling through genomes <laughs> right. looking, uh, looking for some weird mutation or something. 
All right, Emma, let's go ahead and finish this thing up. So if you could give people some advice on how to get a awesome scientific job like yours, what would it be like? How did you get your job? How would you recommend other people get a job like that? Oh, God, I was very lucky. Um, that, <laughs> so that, um, but actually my job story, I went to like this networking event that was very much like speed dating um, that was hosted by Science Magazine so, or Science, the Journal of Science. Um, and I was like, okay, I just moved to the city. Like that could be good. Um, so I'll go do that. And I met this postdoc um, named Phyllis who worked at a hospital in, uh, she worked at Beth Israel Hospital in downtown Boston. And she was like, I can't pay you, but you don't have any experience on your resume. Um, so I can give you that. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I worked for Phyllis for the summer for free. Um, and the luck comes in that like my parents were supporting me at this time. And I was like fresh out of college. So like, I understand like there was a lot of privilege and, um, rooted in the success story here, but you know, you put yourself out there, you know what you can do. Um, and if it works for you, do it because that moment and that partnership is really what set the tone for the way the rest of my career has gone so far because from there I got picked up by a lab in Dana-Farber because they liked that I worked for free um, <laughs> which was more or less what they you know they were paying me but you know <laughs> barely and but I and like I got into a lab that um, I did not know how well known the PI was in my lab but he ended up he was one of the um one of the students of a no, that year's Nobel Prize in medicine and physiology. Wow. Student, um, people. <laughs> so that set that lab off. And so I was in that lab. We had a ton of funding. I was doing super cool cancer research on telomeres and um, prostate cancer. And I was loving it. I thought, like, this is what I was going to do forever. And, um, eventually I wanted to make more money and I like graduated to Novartis. Um, I got a couple of my name on a couple of papers, um, and, you know, but from there, but it all started from putting yourself out there, meeting people and networking. Cause you never know who you're going to meet. You're never going to, you never know what opportunities they can afford, like give you or offer you. And because of that experience, anyone who has ever contacted me on LinkedIn or an email, like asking to talk, I always say yes. Um, because I don't know if I could necessarily help, but if I can, I will certainly try, uh, because that is how I got to where I was. So to not try to give back a little bit would just seem <laughs> unfair and too karma tempting, I think. <laughs> well, then that's like the best advice right there is if you want a job as a scientific associate, just reach out to Emma and yeah. uh, and she'll pay it forward and try to help you out any way she can. Yeah. So, yeah, that's actually true. Uh, you Should I like give you my email or contact in like your podcast description if people wanted to reach out or yeah for sure i have your email so i'll go ahead and put it on the uh, in the show notes so that way if yeah. somebody has some questions they can reach out to you yeah that's great um happy to do that emma so. this has been awesome i have learned so much and i realize how little i know um this <laughs> is super good thank you so much for coming on the show yeah thank you so much for having me it was so nice talking to you 
Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, Just search for the show on iTunes, click on it, click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show, be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview, a particular field that you would like to hear about, or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show. Thanks so much for listening, you guys.